Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This Wednesday, I will be in Chattanooga. The conference begins tomorrow morning, so I have to leave this afternoon in order to be at the conference tomorrow. I'm preaching there Wednesday. Tom will be doing our Wednesday night service here, so come and support Tom. And then I will be back on Friday, and so uh, we'll be here next Sunday. That's the schedule. That's what's up. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have finally, and at long last, made it to chapter 2. Paul is continuing the same theme. He's continuing the same argument, and he's building his argument point upon point. And this is one of the reasons that context is so very, very important. This is why I don't like it when preachers just take a verse out of context and then build their whole message around that. Because they start with, usually, a, an assumed outcome. They have a point that they want to make, and they use the Bible as proof text for what they want to say anyway. And they get away with that by ignoring the context. But when you go verse by verse through a book, then you allow the original writers to make their own argument. And this is a really good argument. Paul is arguing first that the wisdom of the world is not the same as the wisdom of God. Even God's foolishness, he says, is wiser than the wisest of men. He's also going to continue that argument this morning and prove something that I've been saying for a long time, which is that Christianity is a revealed religion. Christianity must be shown to you, taught to you, and revealed to you by God himself. God sometimes uses the means of the preached word, the preached gospel, but it is always, always God who gives the increase. Paul is going to make that argument later on in this letter. He's going to argue that he may plant and Apollos may water, but in the end, the growth, the increase, comes from God alone. And so that's the reason that I keep saying this is a revealed religion. Let me see if I can put it in everyday language so you'll understand it. Uh, I have friends who say, my religion is nature. I love to hug trees or sit by a babbling brook. And my argument is that no matter how many trees you hug and no matter how long that brook babbles, those things can never tell you the reality of what Christ did. All they can do is give you a good feeling about nature, but they can't ever explain the gospel to you, and they cannot reveal God to you. And Paul is very adamant about this, that through the wisdom of men, men did not know God. So no matter how smart people are, though they can build 
box girder bridges and teach you to play the flute. No matter how smart humans are, though in the world they have figured out a lot of very intelligent things about bioengineering and genetics and things I don't even understand, no matter how smart human beings are, they cannot, through their smartness, they cannot, through their intelligence, figure out God. God must reveal that to you. And Paul points out that God has chosen to reveal himself to the, the dregs of the earth. That he has revealed himself to the lesser people on earth, to the lesser things, so that he can confound the wisdom of the wise. So that people who think they're so clever and so wise are ultimately going to be blinded to the reality of God. And God is going to choose those people who did not have the wisdom to figure him out people who he has revealed himself to, so that worldly wisdom is ultimately shown to be fruitless, futile, can't do what only God can do. And that's God's design. That's God's plan. And so now that Paul has established these things, he's going to build on this argument. He's going to continue in chapter 2 to argue that we have a reliance on the Holy Spirit in order to understand the least thing about God. And this is something that, again, I've argued for years and years and years, that if you do not have the Spirit of God, you simply will not and indeed cannot understand your Bible. Uh, I know in my life, I have read the Bible since the time I was a little kid. I went to Lutheran catechism, and they gave me Bible stories, and they gave me a Bible, and they said, here, read this. And I started reading in the Bible, opened right at page one, right at the beginning of Genesis, and I read. And some of it seemed familiar. Okay, the Adam and the Eve story. Okay, the ark and all the animals. But once you get into that part of the Bible that starts talking about all the begatting going on, you, you just lose your mind after a while. Like, what does this mean? What is the importance of all these things? And so eventually I just kind of closed the Bible and realized that I couldn't understand it. And then, of course, I had preachers who did the very thing I said, which was, pull a verse from here or a verse from there and make up their own sermons based on those verses so that they could argue whatever it was they wanted to argue. And again, I was not informed how to understand the Bible, how to preach the Bible, how to even comprehend the Bible. And so it was easy when I got into college. There was a, uh, a Jewish sociology professor, I've told this story before, who essentially drove my Christianity out of me because I was so ill-prepared by the Lutherans to actually defend what it was that I believed because I really didn't know what the Bible said. And through my 20s, you know, there were the rock and roll years and all that stuff, and I still just didn't get it. And then one day, God decided to introduce himself to me. I was in my early 30s, and God suddenly opened my eyes to what his word was about, and I could not stop consuming it. The book that had always been a closed book to me was suddenly open. The book that I could not understand was incredibly understandable. 
The book that I simply couldn't comprehend was very comprehensible because God, by his spirit, gave me the ability to understand the things that he had said about himself. And so that's my experience. It's probably your experience, too. How many people here would like to say that from the time they were very young, they had comprehension of the Bible and God and all that? That'd be nobody. Nobody is born understanding God. Nobody gets it initially. But then at some point in your own life, if you belong to God since before the foundation of the world, at some point he's going to interrupt your life. He's going to intercede and he's going to introduce all these marvelous truths. And once you get a hold of these truths, you can't escape them. You can't get away from them. And if you could get away from them, then God has no ability to keep those people that belong to him. So God, by his spirit, is going to reveal these truths. And that's what God is now going to argue. That through the superiority of humans, if human speech, if human wisdom, if human cleverness, if those things could convince you of God... Well, then somebody else who's equally clever, equally erudite, equally well-spoken, they can talk you out of it. If I talk you into Jesus, Jeff can talk you out of Jesus. If I'm dependent on language to convince you, then language can unconvince you. But if the Spirit of God gets a hold of you, if it's God who has created all things, if it's God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, if that's the one who has convinced you, then you can never be unconvinced because you have the Spirit of the Almighty inside you. So now what Paul's going to argue is when I came to you to tell you about Christ, I did not come to you with great oratory. I did not come and convince you because I myself am such a convincing person. In fact, he says, I was weak. I came to you in fear and trembling. And nevertheless, through the power of God, the dunamis of God, through the power of God, you became convinced of these things I'm telling you, and then you have the gifts of the Spirit. You've abused these gifts, but the gifts of the Spirit of God are so evident in you as a church that you cannot argue that God has not been in your midst. But how was that accomplished? Not by me and not by clever works. That was accomplished by the power of God awakening, enlightening, regenerating those people who belong to him. You get the argument? Now remember last week he said the Jews look for a sign and the Greeks look for wisdom. And now he's going to say the spirit of God brings the power of God that produces the miraculous works that the Jews are looking for. And it is the wisdom of God, which is the thing that the Greeks are looking for. In the spirit of God, you find both the works and the intelligence to satisfy everybody who comes to look. That's going to be the argument. All right, let's start at chapter 2. I'm uh, fearful of a meme that Thaddeus put on, the, uh, on my phone, which went on the internet this week. But I will say that was all introduction. I'm just glad that it didn't take 45 minutes to get there, proving that Thaddeus is a liar. And so, 
I like the fact that half the room had no idea what I was talking about. And those who are, and half of you did, yes. Half are on the Facebook and half are not, and now we know which is which. Pardon me? And who's saved. And who's saved, we know that. <laughs> Chapter two, verse one, starts with the word and. And we can't start anything on the word and. We have to go back and see what he's adding to. Go back to chapter 21, verse 26. 25. I know, Genesis chapter 1. I'm, I'm just, I keep going. Here we are. Verse 25 of chapter 21. Of one. What did I just say? Verse 25 of chapter 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians. The internet will never hear that. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he's chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or superiority of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Let's talk about those words for a moment because this is how Paul is beginning to describe himself. When I came to you, I came in weakness. That is actually the Greek word for strength with the alpha negative in the front of it. No strength. I came to you strengthless. And then he used a phrase that he uses a couple of times, fear and trembling. Like when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling knowing the whole time that it's God that works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that fear and trembling concept is actually the words from which we get phobias and traumas. Tromos and phobos. And so Paul is saying, when I came to you, I came to you with reverence. I came to you with weakness. I came to you in fear and in trembling, unlike 
all those people who might come to you with great wisdom, with great oratory, with excellence of speech. I came to you with none of that. Instead, what I came to you with was Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's the essence of my message. Now, let me add for just a moment that I have heard messages on that verse by people who want to simplify the gospel. And so they have said, hey, even Paul would only preach Christ and him crucified. That was their argument. I heard a sermon once, an entire half-hour sermon, which is just long enough for my introductions, but a whole half-hour sermon on the fact that we needed to keep the gospel very, very simple because Paul would only come to the Corinthians with Christ and him crucified. If it were true that that was the whole of what Paul preached, this would have been a really short letter. He could have just said, I know nothing among you but Christ, take care, love you, mean it, Paul. And that would be the end of that letter. He had a great deal to say, but, as he's going to point out in a moment, he was talking to people who could only consume the milk of the word. They weren't ready for strong meat yet. They were still in their flesh. They were still abusing the gifts that God had given them. They weren't ready to grow up and be mature Christians yet. And so among them, he only uttered the basis of Christianity, Christ and him crucified. But then Paul is going to go on to the deeper things. And Paul was ready to expound the great mysteries of God to those who were mature. So I only point that out to say This is a verse that pulled from its natural context has done a great deal of damage to the Pauline corpus. People have said Paul only preached this, and that's not true. He actually preached a great many very deep, very broad things. Read the first two chapters in the book of Ephesians. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read what... What Micah read for us this morning that ended with, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a very grand statement. And it's backed up by his depth of logic and theology. But among these people who were incapable of the strong meat of good teaching and sound doctrine, he started at the very basics, which is Christ and him crucified. If you've got that much, you've got the beginning of the Christian message. You've got the heart of the Christian message. You've got the essence of the Christian message. The rest of the Christian message is very expansive and very deep and intellectually stimulating. But if you've got Christ and him crucified, you've got the essence of the gospel. And by the way, let me say this, that message of Christ and him crucified is a message that you and I can preach to absolutely anybody. I don't care if we're talking about somebody with a diminished capacity to understand things. I don't care if we're talking about a child. I don't care if you're talking about a Vietnam vet in a wheelchair with no legs. I'm talking about anybody on the planet. You can tell them about Christ and him crucified. 
They may not comprehend the five points of Calvinism. They may not comprehend the first couple chapters of Ephesians. They may not comprehend the deep things of God. But if they understand Christ and him crucified, then God is working on them. And that's a message we can preach to everyone. And by the way, if they reject Christ and him crucified... All of the other very deep and necessary theological stuff that Paul is going to elucidate won't make any difference. They have to know Christ and him crucified. So Paul could say, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And let me bring this into a a more modern context. There are a great many people right now, you can find them on TV or on the radio or scattered all over the internet, who are arguing about proofs for God and who are arguing through men's wisdom that you should come be a part of their group. You should, here, I'll make it even easier. Joel Osteen. There, you got it? There. He is convincing people that they ought to come be part of his group because he's entertaining and he's funny and he's good looking and he's going to put on a grand show and they've got a big stadium and it's all all the stuff that would attract people who are attracted to entertainment venues anyway. Those people are also attracted to the entertainment and to the show that is the Joel Osteen show. And so through the wisdom of men, people are being drawn there. And then he's trying to convert people to his version of Christianity, which excludes hell or judgment or sin. Any of that is excluded. So it's not actually Christianity. But he is trying to convert people to his version of Christianity through his own wisdom and attractiveness. Here's the problem. Once you attract people to that, once you convert them to that, once they are following that, not only are they getting a truncated version of what Christianity actually is, but just as easily, as I already said, they can be talked out of it. Just as easily, somebody else can come along with as much cleverness. Joyce Meyer. Somebody can come along with just as much cleverness, T.G. Jakes. Somebody else can come along with just as much showbiz and convert them from this church to that church. And they're just as lost as they can be, but they're attracted to men's wisdom. They are attracted to men's showbiz. They are attracted to these philosophies that these people are putting forward that don't have anything to do ultimately with Christianity. You get the point? I know I named a few names. Does anybody mind? Okay, fine. Because here's the point. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power 
that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The power of God, the dunamis of God, through his spirit, inhabiting particular people, bringing them to faith in the finished work of Christ. That is a powerful thing. Now, among the Corinthians, they also got gifts of the spirit. Later, Paul is going to have to talk about the way that they have abused those gifts. They've seen the power of God on example, but... I today, standing here right now, believe that I have seen examples of the power of God. I have seen rebels come to Christ. I have seen people who are living lives of debauchery and ego and doing their own thing. I have seen them become humble and kind and loving and servile. That, that's, that is a miracle to see somebody act in complete opposition to their own nature. Their own nature is to be self-centered. Their own nature is to take care of themselves. I'm number one. And then they become careful to take care of other people. And they be careful to be generous with other people. And they be careful to make sure that Christ is first in their life and in everything that they do. And I argue that that is absolutely miraculous. That is the power of God. Here, I'm going to take another controversial step. As if the other ones weren't controversial, I'm going to go further. I know some people who are in a church like I just described. I know some people who are in a local Nashville showbiz church. And here's what I know about them. As much as they're entertained in their church... And as simple as the preaching is in their church, they have not changed one iota because their church doesn't require them to change. It's amazing how many heads are nodding. You know people like that. You know people who go to church and they get entertained and they watch the show and they leave as ignorant as they walked in because they were never challenged with the reality of the power of the spirit of God. All they got out of it was men's wisdom. And that can't change you. That is why I've said, I can't hold people over hell and say, believe! Believe or burn! I can't change anybody. But I know one who can. I know the God who can change people. I know the essence of how humans are I know the base instinct of humans and when they act against their base instinct for the benefit of Christian causes and other Christian people I recognize that that's the spirit of God working in and through them and I'm thrilled to see it I'm I'm never confused when somebody who's of the world acts like the world I saw a lot of it this week at the Republican National Convention. Did I say that out loud? The world acting like the world. Tune in this week, the Democrats will act the same way. I've seen plenty of the world acting like the world, and it never, never surprises me. But when I see somebody turn, when I see somebody repent, when I see somebody change, that amazes me. Because I see the power of God doing what only God can do. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I did not come to you with clever speech. 
I did not come to you with worldly wisdom. I came to you weak and in phobias and tromos. I came to you lowly, and yet through the power of God, you have been formed into a church. You have been changed. You have been converted. You, you even have the gifts of God. Again, let me simplify it. Um, you have the ability, he's going to write to them, you have the ability to speak languages you've never spoken. That's a pretty good gift. I would like that gift. It would surprise you all massively if suddenly I started speaking French or German or any language on the planet. But I am distinctly monolingual. I'm very good at English. I was an English major. I have some Greek study behind me. I can't profess to be any kind of Greek expert or Greek speaker. But here is what I know. Even the people who spoke Greek when Christ was on the planet and he spoke Aramaic and Greek to people who naturally spoke Aramaic and Greek, even they didn't understand him. Even they didn't get it. So it's not in the language. It's in the revelation. So he says, your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And yet, now he puts in this parenthetical kind of idea. He says, and yet, we do speak wisdom. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. Okay, there's the balance to the I chose to know nothing among you, save Christ and him crucified. But among those who are mature, I also spoke the hidden wisdom of God. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, that is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. I really like that argument. Because as I have said time and time again, do not put your confidence in things that are going to burn. And this whole planet and all this worldly wisdom is going to pass away and burn away and become ashes. And yet there are so many people who put their confidence in that stuff. I got a box full of stuff. I call it my house and my furniture and my stuff. And if I have enough stuff and enough money in the bank, if I've got enough stocks and bonds, if I've got enough investments, then I'm going to be okay. Well, you might be okay for your three score and ten down here, but what are you going to do when you stand before God? At that point, you've got nothing and all of the things that you collected in this world are going to add up to absolutely nothing. We're going to hear Isaiah say it in just a moment. So a, a wisdom exists that is a wisdom not of this world and not of the rulers of this world. We put so much confidence in our rulers we're electing people again this year. And we think foolishly that the next person is going to change it. The next person, they'll fix it. The next person we elect into office, now everything's going to be okay. The next guy, he's going to make it all right. That never changes. Nothing ever gets better. 
The world is winding down and people are waxing worse and worse, despite the fact that they are choosing their own leaders that are supposedly going to make something better. But Paul is very clear that a wisdom exists that is not the wisdom of this world. It is not the wisdom of the rulers of this world, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Oh, that's great language. First off, mystery. Mysterion is the Greek. It just, it just moved in the English language. It just migrated in. It was kind of transliterated in. And what it means, in essence, is something that has not been revealed up till this point. And Paul talks about the fact that he is assigned to reveal these mysteries. And these are things that God had in reserve, God had prepared for us since before the foundation of the world. And then it was Paul's job to reveal these things to us. And that's what he calls this wisdom of God that the wisdom of the world simply does not comprehend. Here, I'll give you an example. Have you ever used the word predestination and election with anybody? Yeah, see how easy that was? Yeah, do they get it? Do they understand it? Do they say right away, oh, thanks, I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't told me. Thanks for bringing that up. No, what will they do? They'll argue with you. God elects? That's not fair. And then you'll argue, no, I, I don't want God to be fair. I want God to be gracious, kind, merciful. If God was fair, then everybody would be judged and condemned. I don't want the fairness of God. I want God to predestinate since before the foundation of the world. I want him to decide and to choose and to elect and to bring certain people into his presence because that's the only way anybody gets into his presence. And they will say, I don't like your God. Your God is mean. Your God doesn't give people a fair shot at coming into heaven. So I don't like what you preach. I don't like what you believe. I want none of that. However, everything I just said about God's predestinary will and decision is all revealed in the Bible. It is the hidden wisdom of God. These are the things that Paul came along to reveal, to tell us about. And these are the deep things, but those deep things can only be understood by people, as Paul said, who are mature in their faith. For the people who are not mature, we're going to tell them Christ and him crucified, but eventually we're going to bring them up in the things of Christ until they reach the point where we can tell them about the deep mysteries of God, the hidden wisdom of God, the fact that God, since before the foundation of the world, did predestinate, did elect, did choose certain people. And then Paul says, this is the hidden wisdom which God himself predestined for our glory. The fact that Paul was able to reveal it. The fact that Paul was allowed to say, this is how God works. He said is something that was a hidden mystery that was waiting to be revealed so that when he revealed it, people would understand that God had chosen since the foundation of the world that he predestined certain things. Well, 
He predestined everything to come out the way that he had predestined it, and it was all for our glory. These are wonderful words, but notice he said, I can only say that to grown-up Christians. I can only say that to mature Christians. By the way, I don't start with anybody when I'm evangelizing to a person who, who's lost, who knows nothing about the gospel, I don't start with predestination and election. I also don't start with the book of Revelation. I don't start at Revelation 20. You know, I, I start at Christ and him crucified and see whether they can understand that. If they can understand the necessity of Christ's death and his resurrection, if they can understand their own sinfulness and his substitutionary atonement, if they can agree with those basic things, then I've got plenty of time to bring them along in the mature, grown-up aspects of Christianity. But if you start with election and predestination, and you haven't laid the groundwork for you need a savior, then you don't care about election. What does that mean to me? But if you understand how badly you need a savior, and then you're introduced to the only one who can save, it's okay with you if he chose you to save you. You'll find out that that works just fine. By the way, anybody been chosen and elected in here that can testify that it's good news? <laughs> it's such good news. The essence of the gospel. But we preach God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. That's a didactic statement. That's a clear declaration. I'm telling you the wisdom of God which none of the rulers of this age understand. Why do you think that there are laws being passed even as we speak to try to keep Christianity off the airwaves, out of the public market, out of schools? Why this effort to dumb down the things of God? Because the rulers of this age don't get it. They don't understand it. And so they're going to make their own rules, their own dictates, their own laws that say, well, since we don't get it, that means that nobody can get it, and therefore we're going to eliminate it completely from the marketplace of ideas. But Paul told us way back here, they're not going to get it. In other words, and I've said this a few times, in other words, the very fact that the leaders of this age, that the rulers of this world don't get the things of God proves the Bible. The fact that they don't get it, the fact that they're trying to suppress it, the fact that they're holding down righteousness, the fact that they're trying to eliminate Christianity proves the truth of Christianity and the word of God. It is evidence of the fact that God knows what he's talking about. Paul could not write this, that the rulers of this age are not going to comprehend it, not going to understand it. He could not write that if free will theology of everybody having an equal choice was true. Because Paul couldn't know if the rulers of this age were going to get it or not. He'd have to say, I hope the rulers of this age get it, it's up to them and their free will. They can choose to get it or not get it. 
But he didn't say that. He was so sure of God's predestinary election that he could say emphatically, that he could say definitely that the rulers of this world aren't going to get it. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood because if they understood it, here's his logic, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Think about that. That's so clever. Think about it. He is saying God purposefully blinded the minds of the rulers of this age so that they would crucify Christ. That's how in charge of human history God is. The same way that he said to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Just as Peter said in the book of Acts that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were all gathered together to do whatsoever your counsel, your hand had predestined to be done. And what did they do? Kill Jesus. But that's what God predetermined before the foundation of the world. Before the world began, he knew that Christ had to die. He knew when Christ had to die. He knew what year Christ had to die. He knew that he had to die on the Feast of Passover. He knew that he had to be in the grave at the beginning of unleavened bread, that he had to get up the first day of the week because that's the day that is the beginning of uh, first fruits, which is why Paul would call Christ the first fruits of the resurrection. He had to come up exactly that day because 50 days later was going to be Pentecost. Christ had to satisfy all these Old Testament types that had been around for 1,400 years and had and had been practiced every year by the Jews. These things had to be satisfied, and God knew it, so he made sure that there were people there to kill the Christ at the appropriate time, and he did it by blinding their minds to the truth of who God was and what he was doing. And there's no way to avoid that. There's no way to get around it. They did exactly what they wanted to do, and they did exactly what God predestined them to do. And so Paul could argue that had they known, had they understood that this was the Christ, had they understood that God sent this one, the Savior, they wouldn't have killed him. And so they had to kill him, and so God had to keep them in the dark. And he didn't give them any choice. He didn't wait to find out which ones would reject him and which ones would accept him. He made sure that the very people who had the power to kill him would hate him enough to kill him. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus, through his trial, through his beatings, through his crucifixion, we read repeatedly that like a sheep to the slaughter, he said nothing. And that's because with Jesus, words are things. And if he had said something, it would have happened. He even said, don't you know that I can ask my father and he'll send legions of angels to come fight for me. That was still true. He could have at any point said, never mind, let's not do this. He could have listened to the Jews arguing, come down from that cross. And he could have come down from that cross. 
But he didn't say anything, and he subjected himself to that torture, and he died the ignominious death, and he did all that because it was predestined to be done, and it was all for our glory. And that's the plan of God since before the foundation of the world. Now, have I said anything yet that the Bible doesn't say? It's what our Bible says. And if you're going to reject all of that, know what you're rejecting. If anybody rejects what I've just said about God's predestinary will and his decision and his election and his blinding certain people on purpose. If you don't like that, understand what it is you're rejecting. You're rejecting the very word of God. I haven't said anything that's not in the Bible. I've used more words to say it. (laughs) But I haven't said anything that's not revealed. And Paul calls that the revealed wisdom of God. So that's why not everybody gets it. That's why some people can't hear it. Because it's the revealed wisdom of God. Now, in order to prove his point, what he does is he reaches back to the book of Isaiah and he quotes two different passages out of the book of Isaiah. He puts the two together in order to say, this is something that has been predicted since long ago. This is part of your culture, part of your scripture. This is part of your religion. This is something that you ought to know that Isaiah himself said, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, sometimes people read that verse, again, out of context, misunderstand what the argument is, and they say, isn't this a wonderful verse? This is a verse about all the things that God has prepared for us, things we haven't conceived of, things that the eye has never seen and the ear has never heard and the mind has never thought of. Boy, these are great things, but what Paul is saying in context is, Men cannot think about, have never seen, have never heard, can't conceive of what God has planned. It's an indictment against men and the wisdom of men that they cannot understand the things of God. Because in a moment, he's going to say, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. So in a moment, he's going to say, this hidden wisdom of God has revealed to us these great things that God has planned. But when Isaiah wrote it, when Isaiah thought it, it was a condemnation against human beings who could not conceive of God. Their eyes couldn't see it, their ears couldn't hear it, and it had not entered into the hearts of men what God had planned. But he has a plan for human beings that God is in the process of revealing through Paul, and Paul is exposing those mysteries For the first time. Here, let's take a look at Isaiah so that you'll understand what I'm saying. Turn first, if you would, to um, Isaiah 64. It's right at the end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 64. That particular piece that Paul is quoting from is from verse 4, but I want to read more of it than that because this is a passage that I really do like and enjoy. Isaiah 64, verse 1 says, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, 
that the mountains might quake at thy presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations may tremble at your presence. How many people here feel like that? Because what Isaiah is saying, oh God, just come. Just interrupt human history. It's such a mess down here. I can't wait till you just come and show yourself like the fire so that your enemies are going to tremble in your presence. I want to see that. I'm anticipating the return. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yes, this same idea, same thought. When thou didst awesome things which we did not expect. Okay, here's the context. We humans didn't expect God to do these things. And thou didst come down, and the mountains quaked at thy presence, for from of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen a God besides thee who acts in the behalf of the one who waits for him. So it's an indictment in Isaiah's language. He's saying we human beings simply do not understand the things of God. Their eyes don't see, their ears don't hear, their heart is hardened, and they cannot, despite their best efforts, comprehend the things of God. A God who would die for them. They can't begin to comprehend such things. Exactly. Now, within context here, look at verse 6. You probably know this passage, but this again will give you the context of Isaiah's statement. He says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. How often have I quoted that? All our best righteousnesses are like filthy rags, according to the King James rendering of it. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take a hold of you. For thou hast hidden thy face from us, and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. And so this again is all part, I keep using the word indictment, I can't think of a better word. This is all part of Isaiah's indictment against human beings that they just don't know anything about God. And even the best thing that a human can do is nothing but filthy rags. When you think that you're going to take your works, when you think that you're going to take your righteousness, when you're going to take your personal cleverness, when you're going to take your intellectual thoughts about God to God, he's going to consider that nothing but filthy, bloody rags. It's nothing. You've got nothing you can take to God. He has to be gracious to you. He has to be kind to you. He has to be merciful to you. But if you take anything that has to do with you building yourself up, I've got you figured out, God is going to view that as nothing. In fact, worse than nothing, filthiness. Because we've all been swept away by our sin. That's the point. All right, go back to 1 Corinthians. 
Now I think you understand Paul's whole argument. Let me put it in context. Yet we do speak wisdom. This is verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, that is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understand. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it's written about them, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The things that human beings, the things that the wisdom of this world, the things that the leaders of this world can't comprehend, that's what God has planned for those who love him. You get the argument? And so he says, for to us, notice the use of us, very personal pronoun, not to everybody, but to us, those who love God, to us God revealed these things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. We'll stop there, but he's going to go on and say, think about a human being. Think about a man. Nobody knows what's going on inside a man except the man. I don't know what's going on with George right now. I don't know what's going on with Jeff or Steve right now. They can tell me their story. They can say, well, this or that happened. But what really goes on in their heart of hearts, what really goes on in their minds, I don't know. I had a friend one time tell me, he said, Jim, you don't know what it's like to be black. This was a black preacher friend of mine. And he said, you don't know what it's like to be black. And I said to him, nobody knows what it's like to be anybody. Because nobody knows what it's like to be anyone else but themselves. I don't know what the experience is of anybody else. I'd like to be young, good-looking, and agile like Thaddeus. But I don't know. At this point in life, I don't know what it's like to be Thaddeus. I don't know what goes on in his head. Nobody knows anything except what they know from their personal experience. And so Paul is going to argue, only a man knows what's going on with a man. And then he argues, and only God knows what's going on with God. And only the Spirit of God can explain God to you. I can tell you about me. But that's all I know. I can't tell you about anybody. Josiah. I can't tell you Josiah's story. Josiah has to tell you Josiah's story. And so the same thing. Nobody can tell you about God because he's God. Only the Spirit of God can reveal God because he is God. And therefore he can tell you about himself. And you have to have that revelation from God before you can understand the least thing about God. You understand that? Do you get the argument? You get where Paul's going? Because he's still arguing all the way into chapter 4. And he's building this argument bit by bit, piece upon piece. 
And he's eventually going to argue, what am I? What is Apollos? We're nothing. We might plant seed. We might water seed. But it's God who makes it grow. So he's going to go back to giving God all the credit. And that's the way Christianity is. I'll say again, it's a revealed religion. You can't know it unless God tells it to you. And if I talk and talk and talk and talk until you just can't take it anymore. And you say, okay, I'll believe if you'll shut up. (laughs) Then later on, somebody else is going to come along and they're going to convince you of their thing. And next thing you know, you're going to be a a member of some Hindu religion because it sounded good. But if God convinces you, if God by his spirit implanted in you, if God by the wisdom of God reveals himself to you, then that's going to stick with you and nobody can talk you out of it. And as the wisdom of this world says, we reject Christianity and we rebel against Christianity, and we want to suppress Christianity, nobody's going to be able to talk you out of it. You will even hang your eternity on it. You will step out of this life into the next life, resting fully on the finished work of Christ, because that's what God has told you. That's what God has convinced you of. And I'm talking about me when I say that. Because there have been many times that I've tried to get away from it. And I can't. I'm still standing here doing this because I am absolutely convinced that this is the truth because no man convinced me of it. God did. And by his spirit, I'm convinced. You got it? Any questions about that? It seems like this whole argument that Paul's making here and then what we'll be covering next week, it should be the death now of the idea of decisional regeneration. It should be the death knell of decisional generation. And you don't find decisional regeneration anywhere in the Bible, but you do find this stuff. And so I think anybody who pays attention to what the word says, to the deeper things of God, you're absolutely right. They can't support free will decision making from the text. Yes, sir. You made a point earlier, I'm not sure I understood you seem to say that if Arminianism was true, there would not have been a crucifixion. Well, I didn't use the word Arminianism. Yeah, I, know you, I know you didn't, but if, if people could choose, there would not have been a crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's your point, uh, you shouldn't go over it lightly because it's a very important point. Could you elaborate on, on what you're saying? I don't think anyone in this room wants me to elaborate, but... <laughs> but. But yes, I agree with you that that's the point that Paul is making here. That had men through human wisdom understood the things of God, if they could figure out the plan of God based on human wisdom, they would not have killed the Christ. And had they not killed the Christ, we're not saved. We're of all men most miserable. There is no resurrection of the dead. And we have no mediator. We only have God up there who must judge us. And so very, very important that Christ did die as our substitute. And that only happened because God's in control of what human beings do. And so there is no, as Jeff said, no decisional regeneration. There is only the sovereignty of God. 
that point deserves emphasis, I think. I agree. I think that's why Paul wrote it in this book. Anything else? Yes, sir. I just think of the, the amount or the level of protection and security that is in, like you say, I can't get away from it. Yeah. Because if someone comes along, you know, puts a gun to your head and says, okay, which is it? You know, do you believe these things? And if I could get away from it to save my skin, I, I would, <laughs> if I could think that. But because the way God reveals it, and it is the power of God, yeah. it's actually the power of God protecting us, and we can't get away. Yeah, and you can't get <laughs> away from it. Think about the earliest apostles who quite literally gave their skin, who were tortured and all died terrible deaths, save John who ends up on Patmos. And all they had to do was say, never mind, we made it up. Never mind, we lied. We got together as a group and made up this story. And there's no telephone or telegraph or internet or radio. They could deny him in one city, save their own skin, go to another city and tell the same story. And nobody would know. And yet, nowhere in human history, nowhere, not once, do we have anybody saying that they have a record of any one of them recanting. And that's remarkable to me. And they did it alone. And they did it alone, yeah. Yeah. They died for what they were absolutely convinced of. And they could have saved their own skin, but they chose not to. So I agree with you. If somebody puts a gun to your head and says, quit believing that, you go, I can't. You might as well shoot me. We're convinced of this. Anything else? Yes, sir. You said not only is there no evidence of them denying Christ, but there's also no evidence of somebody putting together a lie saying, they told me this, trust me. Yeah. That's right. not even there. Yeah, so, that doesn't exist. God has wiped the record clean so that he's, his glory stands alone. He rose from the dead. The entire preachment that we know as Christianity was complete, well-rounded, and ready to be preached within 50 days of Jesus' resurrection. Yep. There's no time for them to get together and concoct a story and figure out all the theological fine points. And expand on all that. It was completely ready and preached on Pentecost within 50 days of Christ coming out of the grave. There's no time for theological development or historical development. Instead, what you have is men who told exactly what they actually experienced. And you can do that with truth tellers, but you can't do that with liars. And simple men. Yeah. Who told the truth. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.